everybody, welcome back to another episode of Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Brian Karam. He is the senior White House correspondent for Playboy, a contributor for CNN and other networks, author of six fantastic books, including Spin Control, Essays and Short Stories, and the host of a fantastic podcast, Just Ask the Question which is also his website. Brian, I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you for passing judgment with us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And as long as all we're passing is judgment, I'm happy. <laughs> lots and lots of judgment. And thank you for thank you for kicking us off on that note. <laughs> so few people in the world will ever get to be a senior White House correspondent for a major outlet. Very few people in the world will ever get to be in the White House briefing room. And I'd love to just start with a really broad, unfairly broad question, which is, what's the biggest challenge in covering the Trump White House? Getting anyone to tell you the truth about anything, uh, getting anyone to um, abide by what I consider societal norms, good manners, or professionalism. It's much like when I coached high school football, dealing with kids, particularly freshmen and middle schoolers. This is an administration that doesn't seem to understand the historical references or anything that has gone before them. They don't adhere to any what you would consider normal ways of dealing with people. And so if they come in and tell me the sun is rising in the east, I'd have to stick my head out the window and look just to be sure because they never tell you the truth about anything. So you already said it because you said this is norm breaking and this is different, but other White Houses have had contentious relationships with the press. Sure. Can you give us? (laughs) Yes. But it seems to me that you're saying this is just qualitatively different in every way. Is that right? yeah, look, I've I've covered every president since Reagan. Reagan, I you know, I didn't get along with him. And there was a, you know, Larry Speaks infamously said, uh, don't tell us how to stage the news. We won't tell you how to report it, um, which is pretty unnerving in and of itself. And, you know, uh, Clinton, we had to deal with what the definition of is is. And we had contentious relationships with the uh, Clinton White House. Both of the Bushes, I, I got into an infamous argument with the first George Bush at a drug summit news conference in San Antonio. Um, the second one was a friendly guy, but uh, his he was very controlling and uh, hated leaks and was very difficult to deal with. Uh, Barack Obama had the uh, Espionage Act used nine times on people who were you know whistleblowers. So. We've had contentious relations, and that's the way it should be, because they are there to put their best foot forward, and we are there to find out the truth. And there is a – it's not a meshing of the gears all the time. It's going to be combative. That's par for the course. What's not usual is for the president of the United States to declare me the enemy of the people and to say that everything we do is fake. And then to admit that he only does it so people won't believe us when we report bad things about him. We're talking real fascist type of uh, propaganda. And while press secretaries in the past were trying to put the uh, 
the administration's best foot forward, there was also they were also bound and tethered to reality in some extent. While they tried to stretch the facts or make things look good for the administration, they weren't propagandists who came out and lied wholesale, and then when confronted with their lies, lied some more, and then after lying some more, then accused us of just trying to say bad things about them because they're really the greatest thing in the world. We have never seen press uh, briefings such as uh, what we see now. The In the beginning, you had Sean Spicer who tried, um, you know, he did a lot of things wrong, including coming out and lying about the size of an inaugural crowd. But he's also the only one in that administration to ever admit a mistake. I confronted him on a mistake one day when he said, you know, say what you will about Hitler, but he never killed his own people. And I said, uh, Sean, he, he, he gassed the Jews. There was an audible, audible sigh in that room when he said that. And he did come out and apologize for that later. And that's the only apology we've had out of this administration in four years. And then you had the, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders infamously, I got into it with her, um, and then she left, and then uh, Stephanie uh, Grisham came in, and we didn't even see her for the time she was in the White House. And now we have Kaylee McEnany, who actually, her briefings have been reduced to high school pep rallies. She comes out for 25 minutes when she does. She hasn't recently because she is infected with the coronavirus, but when she was conducting them, she would come out and give a 10-minute uh, speech in which she told us that uh, we were horrible and the Democrats were horrible and everything was horrible except what Trump wanted. She'd take four or five questions, uh, usually two of them from friends that she knew, you know, that she had placed in the room and would give her softballs. And then she'd give another five-minute speech and walk off, you know, drop the mic and leave. And she did that during a time when the coronavirus had limited us to only 14 people in that room. And so it it was an appearance that was generated to make the administration look like it was in control and they were able to do it because the coronavirus did something that Trump never could. And that was limit successfully the access of the press to the president in such a fashion that uh, friends and family and loved ones of the president got as much, if not more, air in that room than legitimate reporters. So it's just been, uh, for the lack of better words, show from uh, day one. So I'm really glad that you brought up this issue of the difference in roles between the administration, the press secretary, and what the press does. And I know you've had a couple of, as you label them, infamous run-ins with presidents, press secretaries. And I want to talk about those, but I can't help but think, so faced with this reality, what is the press's role in the Trump White House? Do you essentially act as just a full-time fact checker? How can you function? That's a good question. And the answer is always the same. Our role is to expose the truth. We should not be stenographers. One of the biggest criticisms I have of, of us in that room is we do not follow up each other on our questions very well. You will get a jaw-dropping answer to a question uh, of serious import, and then we'll move on to a question like, what do you think of the royals? You know, and, and so we need to be better at following each other up. Part of that is because now, as I said, there are only 14 people in that room and not 75. So you're limited with the number of reporters who have uh, the experience 
and the wherewithal to do the job. And you have sometimes less experienced reporters in that room who don't push back. I'm not there to fact check the president per se, but I am there to fact check the president and to push back against what I'm not going to say, call him a liar. I'm going to say, no, you said this on this day, on this day, you said that these things have uh, exposed themselves this way. You claim that we're, we're the best nation in the world for uh, dealing with a coronavirus, yet we lead the world in the coronavirus deaths. How can you possibly continue to, to maintain that lie? I've called him out for his lies. I will continue to call him out for his lies. I'm not there to be his stenographer, and no one in the press should be. There is a fine line to walk. There are many people who think we should just put our head down and do our job. He changed the rules on us. He made us part of the story. And I'm sorry, but I grew up, the only way to deal with a bully is to thump him in the nose. And he needs to be thumped metaphorically in his nose every day from the press to push back against his lies. He called Jeff Mason on the tarmac yesterday, what was it, yesterday, the day before in Arizona, called the Reuters White House reporter a criminal. If that had been me, I would ask him if that's a threat and what does he mean by it and what does he intend to do about it? There should be pushback against him because words have meaning. And he doesn't believe that the words have meaning, and he has diluted the meaning of words with his continuous lies, and we have to hold him accountable for them. So why doesn't the press corps come together and say, no, Mr. President, you didn't answer that question. I've seen the California press corps do that a little bit with the governor. And I'm not comparing our governor to the president, but I have seen them work in a concerted way. I mean, it, but it doesn't seem like the White House press corps really does that to, and say, no, I don't have a new question. I'm going to wait until you answer the one that Brian just asked. There should be more of that. In fact, when I asked recently, it should have happened a little quicker, but I asked him recently, win, lose, or draw, would you commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election? And he wouldn't do it. In fact, he said if certain votes weren't counted, there wouldn't be a transfer of power. The next question, I think, out of the mouth of a reporter was about uh, Marilyn Marco and, and you know, the prince, and I don't even remember what it was. And no one picked that up until the next day when John Carl said, hey, yesterday the president said this. What did he mean? And then there's been follow-up for days after that. Part of that problem is, as I said, there are only 14 people in that room and each one has, and there are so many issues to cover and so little time in a 25 minute briefing to do it. The president, on the other hand, you should go after him both barrels. I don't care if there's two people in the room. In fact, when there's one person going after him, you have seen the best of us holding him accountable. When Jonathan Swan from Axios got him in a one-on-one -on -one situation and wouldn't let him squirm out of, of his lies. When you had Savannah Guthrie in a town hall hold him accountable. Again, that was one-on-one. -on -one. In both cases, he could have just got up and walked away and that would have been bad. But he stayed and took it and the reporters knew what they were doing and followed up on their own questions. The problem is when you have more than one person in a room, there are competing agendas, there are competing stories, and sometimes we don't listen to each other. However, that is overcome when you have a number of people in that room. There are 49 seats in that room, and sometimes standing room will put 100 people in that room during a briefing or when the president is there, and the questions come fast and furious. And if you don't follow up, somebody is going to follow up on it because it has drawn the attention of it. It's drawn someone's attention. When you only have 14 people in that room, it's harder to do. 
There's just no other way to put it. And he enjoys that. So one is good, 14 bad, 100 great. That's interesting that it's true. I mean, I remember that Axis interview. I remember, of course, the town hall from just a few nights ago now. And it seems like we know so much about the Trump White House, but you're actually in there on the front lines. Is there something that you think the public just fundamentally misunderstands about how this White House functions? Honestly, television is not reality. And you may watch something on TV and think you've seen everything and you haven't. And there are things that you pick up in the room during a briefing that you can't pick up on television. And in fact, you won't see on television. Um, Being there on a daily basis gives you access to more information and more opportunities to get information than you can get from simply reading a newspaper or watching something on TV or listening to pundits on television who weren't there themselves spout out their opinions based on second and third hand knowledge. The people I listen to, the people I um, want to know, hear from are those who are actually there. And better than that, I want to be there. And I know that if I am there, that in gathering the facts, good or bad, I'll make them available. Now in this administration, you cannot get past, you can't even get to policy because he has eroded our basic tenets of democracy. The very foundations of what this country is are in peril because of Donald Trump. His constant lying, his manipulations, all of it has led to a precipice that we better back away from quickly. Can we? Can we back away from that quickly? I think it's going to, you know, I was talking to members of the GOP and members of the Democratic Party, even if he loses what he's dismantled in four years may take a generation to fix. But yes, four more years of Donald Trump, I don't know that we could. I think this country will be fundamentally different if we have Donald Trump for another four years. And I think that there are enough people fed up with him and the machinations of the GOP. You know, I, I don't know that that Mitch McConnell will be unseated because He's from a state that elected both him and Rand Paul. And apparently, you know, Kentucky has always been one of the uh, worst states for education. And we're seeing the uh, results of that other than in uh, Louisville, where there are you know, very progressive tendencies and educated people out in the hinterlands of Kentucky. There are very few, uh, you know, <laughs> cul-de-sacs of intelligence left. And so I think that no matter what, Mitch McConnell does, he'll be reelected. But I think there's a very real chance that uh, the Senate will flip. And I think with those type of things happening, if the Senate flips, if the Democrats get a larger majority in uh, the House that we could see uh, more quickly than not, some of the things return to close to being normal. How do you re-educate the American public about what seems to me, we talk about these campaigns of disinformation and misinformation from foreign sources and then sometimes from domestic sources, but it seems to me it's actually coming from inside the Oval Office first and foremost. How quickly can we snap back if there is a Biden administration? Well, a lot of it depends on how the Biden administration deals with the far right and Donald Trump's 
base. It has to be all right in this country. Free speech means free speech for everyone. There are people that get upset in my profession because OAN has a spot, you know, the uh, uh, the Trump-friendly network has a spot in the White House briefing room no matter what. I'm not one of them. I think everyone should have a place at the table. I think I should be included in that place at the table, and I'll worry about getting my questions in once I'm there. I don't have a problem getting my questions heard. I have a problem getting there. No one should have the problem of being there. It should be open to everyone. Free speech means, look, you've got to defend what someone else. I disagree with what you say, but defend to death your right to say it. You can even hate me. Can't act on that hate. But you can espouse your hatred. And then education comes from going, okay, stop. Why do you, There's a great guy, Daryl Davis, who's uh, a, <laughs> he's a musician who's played with Chuck Berry. He is uh, a very large African-American man who has also made his reputation talking members of the Ku Klux Klan out of their robes. And he does this by walking up to him and saying, why do you hate me? And then sitting down and talking to them about what their concerns are and then going through their concerns and showing them where they and, and giving them information that leads them to a better place. If we don't do that, then it won't matter who the president is. We'll continue down this path of divisiveness. You're right. A lot of it starts in the White House, but to do it right in the White House, you're going to have to listen to people that you don't like, accept that they don't like it, and give them an alternative way of thinking in order to guide them into the light. If you're just going to come out and go, you know, um, the KKK and the alt-right and the Proud Boys all suck and we ought to put them to death or whatever, you're not going to make any friends that way. It's the exact same thing that Donald Trump has done, except, uh, you know, flipping sides. So should the First Amendment protect lies? First Amendment is a wonderful thing. The First Amendment was set up to protect you and me from our government, not from each other. If you and I are arguing and telling lies, we're just two idiots arguing and telling lies. It's when the government tries to keep you from speaking and lies to do it that the First Amendment comes into play. And thus, you cannot accept lies from your government, and you cannot accept them squelching anyone's free speech. We always seem to mistake what the First Amendment is. You know, I, I've had disagreements with people on TV, and they're going, well, you're, you're, you're just stopping my First Amendment rights. I go, I'm not the government. I'm just, an, I'm just another idiot with an opinion. I don't get to squelch your free speech. The government is what does that, and you've got to stop the government from doing it. Yeah. When I teach the First Amendment law, I think this is one of the least understood aspects, which is we're only talking about protection from the government. And at the top of the First Amendment, what we're worried about is political censorship, that the government yeah. doesn't like what you're saying. There are things that need to be discussed about free speech. Look, I, there's a group I um, am the head of, and it's called the First Jailbirds Club. And it's reporters who have gone to jail in support of the First Amendment. I have spoken in numerous states on the need for a shield law and free speech rights and the First Amendment rights that we seem to take for granted and don't understand. And what I mean, you even had a, 
a candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court who could not name all that is protected under our First Amendment rights, she forgot redress of grievances, which is very important. There are people in this country who do not understand what the First Amendment is, why it is first, or under the uh, under the historical uh, aspects which it came about. The idea of a press being neutral did not come about overnight. It came with the advent of the penny press in the 1830s. Before that, the free press was always political. So each political party had a newspaper and they printed what they thought were you know, what they wanted people to hear, which is not too indifferent from today. So it was during that time that we had the support for a free press, even during times of contention. And that was not exactly what we have today. And we have to learn what the, what the First Amendment is, what it means to us, and how we use it well. We don't do that. We don't understand what the First Amendment is. We always make assumptions that it's something that it's not. And that, you know, somehow the press should be neutral and free of opinion. No, a free press has an opinion. The difference between my opinion being in the White House and the opinion of the guy sitting on his thumbs in central Idaho is the fact that I've seen it firsthand. So, you know, there's an old saying that is uh, attributed to Isaac Isimov that I really love. And Isaac uh, said that, (laughs) well, he said that basically there's been an undercurrent in the United States for years, where democracy seems to be that my ignorance is equal to your knowledge. And uh, that's not the case. And here, I, I can even quote it for you directly. There is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there has always been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. I'm not going to walk into a operating theater and tell a brain surgeon how to do his job. People should respect the fact that I have access to information. And whether or not they like the opinion, it's based on facts. Take the facts, form your own opinion. That's what we seem to have forgotten in this country in a wave of anti-intellectualism and, the, and social media, which gives everyone a chance to be on a bully pulpit. And they don't necessarily have to be informed to tell you what they think. And people listen to it. They get stuck in their own cultural, you know, and philosophical cul-de-sac. And during, and as they sit in that cul-de-sac in an echo chamber of misinformation, they get angry. And Donald Trump has has nurtured that for four years, so that we're as divisive now as we've ever been. He's not the cause of it; he's a symptom of it, and we have to change it. Give us your pitch for the Media Shield Law. Well, the Media Shield Law shouldn't be necessary. However, it it has to come into play now. The First Amendment should be enough. But a Media Shield Law protects reporters from having to give up confidential sources, usually under a three-part test. The information cannot be gotten anywhere else. It is vital to a case. And then the third one is always that um, it vital can't be gotten anywhere else. And finally, the biggest part is that it has to be uh, information obtained by a reporter from a confidential source, blah, blah, blah. So they sit on three on, on a three on a, a tripod and you have to be able to knock all three of them down to get, you know, can't be obtainable anywhere else, et cetera, so on. Those things, um, if they come to pass, then you give up, you may have to give up your information. 
That's the best we can hope for right now. I went to jail for it. I, I firmly believe that reporters should never give up a confidential source unless that confidential source has lied to them, and then I will burn them in a heartbeat. It's up to the reporter to decide when, if, and how to burn a source. It's not up to the government. I remember that you were in jail in 1990, I believe, for saying, I'm not going to give up my source. And how did you end up, how did that end up ending? I went to jail four times. It went to the Supreme Court in um, Justice Brennan, one of his last acts as a member of the Supreme Court, put it up for a vote before the Supreme Court as to whether or not they even let me out of jail to proceed with my uh, with my appeal. And by a five to four vote, they said, <laughs> screw him, let him sit and rot. By then, um, about a year had passed since the story broke. Uh, the last uh, source that I was protecting uh, had uh, feared for her life. She moved from Texas to um, California. And once she moved to California, she came uh, forward of her own volition. What made you go into journalism? Um, that's a really good question. A, I like to write. I always wanted to write. But B, when I was a kid, I always, there was a newspaper where I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, called Courage Journal and Louisville Times. And um, the editor's notebook from um, Barry Bingham Sr., the guy who ran it, always just captured me, captured my imagination that a reporter could be someone that, like a first responder, ran to the fire, ran to the war, ran to uh, the corruption, ran to things and witnessed them. I wanted that front row seat to history. I wanted to be able to tell people what was going on. And I I felt there was was something noble in doing it. And uh, to, you know, that sounds maudlin as hell, but it's, it's true. And um, I, I remember there was a point in time where, um, you know, my career was like every other reporter. You're only called a journalist. I was told you were only called a journalist when you were out of work. So I've been a reporter most of my life and a journalist on occasion. And one of the times when I was a freelance journalist, I had the opportunity to get out of the business and I couldn't do it. I just I felt the tug to be too strong for me to to leave. It's something I've always enjoyed. And it, it gets you to mix with a variety of people, whether it's covering a war. And, you know, I've been lucky in my career to have covered wars, high school football, pro sports, uh, presidential um, debates, presidential elections, uh, administrations, Congress, uh, traveled, you know, in foreign lands and always on somebody else's nickel, which was always great because they don't pay you very well as a reporter. So, yeah, it's always nice to get someone else to pay the freight. It does feel, I mean, when you talked about going to jail and not giving up your source, it does feel like it's in your DNA. And you just mentioned, of course, the looming president. You said, I've covered elections. I want to come back to something that you asked the president. You asked him about a peaceful transfer of power. As you said, (laughs) now I threw down about 90 minutes of sleep last night for a couple of reasons, one of them dealing with this idea of whether or not there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. Do you mm-hmm. see a scenario in which President Trump says, you know what? I would have won, but it was rigged. It was rigged from the beginning. I told you all along it was rigged. And that's why I'm leaving because I just can't take it anymore. I'm going to start you know, my own network. But he does, in fact, go. Do you yeah. see that happening? Of course. Look, Donald Trump, <laughs> you may 
say a lot of things about Donald Trump, but I'll tell you this much. He has the survival instincts of a New York City sewer rat. So he's if he raises his hackles and fights, he won't survive. His best chance of survival is to leave. And I so of course I, and I think he's always full of bluster. What the bigger problem is is not what Trump does, it's what some of his minions do. It's what some of the people who have attached themselves to Donald Trump, the Proud Boys, the Ku Klux Klan, the QAnon uh, supporters, those people, he's going to have to, what he really will need to do at some point in time is step out and go, look, you know, I told you this was going to happen. We're going to do our due diligence, stand down. Because it doesn't behoove, it isn't in Donald Trump's personal interest to have the United States engaged in uh, violence. No matter what anyone thinks, I don't believe that. And I believe, honestly, after covering this man for four years, if he had had different parenting, he would have been a different person. Because Donald Trump, when I see him, is a guy, he, he, he lashes out because A, he wants to be loved, and B, he doesn't know how to do it. And C, he's very bad at, at, he has to have people around him who feed his ego. So he can't have anyone around him that's smarter than him or more engaging than him because he's jealous of it. That's his downfall. He, you know, Savannah Guthrie said, you know, you're not some drunk uncle at the party. And, you know, Mary, Mary Trump tweeted out, well, actually. Actually, yeah. He is. <laughs> actually, he is. If Donald Trump weren't in office, you could almost feel sorry for him. But he is responsible for, uh, uh, you know, we have 4% of the population and, you know, way too much percentage of the death because of the coronavirus. He has gotten us out of the Paris Accords. He has uh, endeared himself to racists. He's hired racists. Stephen Miller couldn't get a job, you know, selling uh, ice cream cones on a popsicle stand if it weren't for for uh, Donald Trump. And he probably never will get a job again. And there are people in that administration that won't be employed and never, and, and are unemployable. Otherwise, those who were employable got out. Um, there are very few people left that you would want to see hired anywhere else after Don. That doesn't mean they won't get hired. They'll probably end up at OAN or Newsmax, but um, nonetheless, yeah, the, the, the end of that question is yes, he's going to walk away. And what you want to make sure is he doesn't walk away before telling the idiots not to go and burn the country down. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, election election night, I think we don't have an answer. I really do believe in the blue shift for a host of reasons that the listeners of this podcast have heard Joe and I talk about. But what do you see as the most likely scenario here? I'm horrible at prognostication. I'm the guy that goes to the, you know, if you've ever been to the Kentucky Derby, there's 10 races in the day. The Derby is the eighth race of the day. I'll win on all the other nine uh, races and lose on the Derby, even if I bet every horse but one. So I'm not that guy to, to prognosticate what happens. There are a limited number of scenarios to consider. A, Donald Trump wins big. And then under that scenario, I think that, uh, there are people who are just going to lose their heads. And um, I don't see that happening. He didn't win the popular vote four years ago. So I don't, I don't see Donald Trump 
widening his base. He's deepened his resolve to his base. So that is kind of not, you know, not high percentage reality. There is a lower, there is a higher percentage, still low percentage that he wins in a close race, same as he did in 2016 with a couple of states and maybe 85,000 votes um, signaling who wins in the electoral college and he'll still lose the popular vote. Then there is the scenario that Biden wins the same way, a tight race, but he'll win the popular vote and uh, win the electoral college by a few votes. And then there's the the blowout, you know, the, the landslide. That's on the upper card. On the undercard is whether or not Republicans retain control of the Senate, and they are all pretty sure they're not. So, I mean, those are the Republicans saying we're screwed, we're going to be in the minority party after this, but they're okay because they got all the judges that they want, and they've stacked the Supreme Court, so they're happy with that. So those are the scenarios you're looking at. I think that looking at the way it's falling out now it's either Biden wins close or Biden wins big. I, the window for Donald Trump winning is closing. And there are people in his White House who are convinced he's going to lose and lose big. And there are people like Anthony Scarmucci who are predicting he'll lose big. And the Lincoln Project, who has helped you know fuel the, the fight against Trump, they think he's going to lose. What, what he does out of the, you know, it, it could all change on a dime if he somehow miraculously pulls something out of uh, the hat in the last debate, if it happens. But that's seen as, as a small chance of that happening. His October surprise with Biden is going nowhere because it's, you know, it's, it's Donald Trump trumped up baloney. So you're looking, I think, at, at the third or fourth possibility either Biden wins close or Biden wins big. And I, I think after that, it, what happens is it will be several days where it may not be in the bag, you know, decided, then it will be decided. Then there's going to be some appeal on vote counts in, in uh, the states that are close. And then there's going to be, you know, it's going to be like, you know, the seven stages of death. And finally, Trump will accept it and move on. What do you think about cutting the mics before the next debate? As a journalist, if you were the moderator, I'm sorry, you're employed. As a reporter, if you were the moderator, (laughs) what do you think about this idea that we're going to have to basically artificially cut off the president of the United States, that we're going to have to play him off? I mean, is there something to be said for maybe the American public should see exactly how he functions in this situation? (laughs) Oh boy, is that a trap question? I love it. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> As a moderator, I've moderated uh, congressional and senatorial debates. There are times, actually, when I wanted to be armed with a small baseball bat <laughs> so I could smack them into submission. So you know, I-, I settled with a loud buzzer, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> and I have often thought of, you know, maybe putting a buzzer on the seat to give them a little electric jolt. Um, I, I think muting it is necessary because it's Donald Trump. I don't think it's, um, preferred because the American people should hear, uh, the president in his full froth. And look, there's no guarantee that you won't. He's just going to, it, it may look worse if he's out there, you know, trying to interrupt and he doesn't have a mic. That's going to be, I just keep thinking about that. And it's going to be like Buster Keaton on steroids. 
I was talking about this with some of my friends last night. Is he just going to kind of run around the stage like Bugs Bunny, just searching for an yeah. open mic and try, you know, try and find his way there? Yeah, I, I said he's, he's going to remind me of the Tasmanian devil, but you and I are thinking about the same way. It's, I don't think he's going to go gentle into that good night, whatever happens. So one more thing I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned you, the Senate and what might happen in the Senate during the election. But this is something as an outsider that to me has been the most surprising part of the Trump administration, which isn't necessarily Trump. It's that the establishment, the supposed adults in the room have all said, but you know what? We really want our judges. So we're just going to go ahead and look at door number two instead of what's happening here, which is this dumpster fire behind door number one. And we're just going to be kind of quiet about it. Am I reading that right? Is this really about the judiciary, deregulation? But what about that? I mean, this is going to sound so absurdly naive. What about country first? Well, Newt Gingrich put that idea, as novel and as noble as it is, to rest when he befouled Congress. And no one should ever forget Newt Gingrich, Mitch McConnell, as being the architects for the demantling of the United States of America, and they should both be held accountable. Donald Trump is not the cause of this. Donald Trump is enabled by this. Donald Trump wouldn't be able to exist if he didn't have a complicit GOP. They have played a long game to and are willing to sacrifice anything to obtain their ends, which is a justice that will serve their conservative agenda. The Supreme Court, they hope they have packed. They talk about packing the Supreme Court by the Democrats. <laughs> it is the Republicans who have packed the Supreme Court. I don't recommend going to more than nine. You know, I don't recommend expanding the Supreme Court. I recommend the proper legislation to make sure that the Supreme Court isn't involved. And I think you should limit the terms of the members of the Supreme Court. But all that being said, it's funny Once those judges get in, you may think that they're for you, and they may generally be, but some like John Roberts has, you know, he even ruled with the liberals this time around. They have a tendency to surprise you once they get in because they're divorced from politics, which is what you want anyway. You want those judicial appointments to be divorced from daily politics. But the bottom line to all of it is, yes, the Senate sold its soul But the Republicans sold their soul many years ago, beginning with Newt Gingrich when he decided that politics was a zero-sum game, that for me to win, you had to lose. Compromise, it used to be that you could go into places in the district and you would see Republicans and Democrats, sure, they'd fight on the floor for their ideas, and afterwards they'd go and have a beer together or have lunch or dinner. You don't see that anymore. It's completely divided. Matt Gates wouldn't be, you know, Satan's cowboy in a previous incarnation of, of the Senator of the House. It is horrible what has happened to our legislation and to our legislature, and it's up to the voters to change it. Gerrymandering has made it so that um, the legislators pick the voters instead of the voters picking the legislators. We can change that if we actually got out and voted. The problem is not enough Americans vote, and they have taken it. The Those who are putting Their party before country, like McConnell, have taken advantage of that situation. They know that their supporters will come out. They know that most other people won't. That's the sad 
tale of, of the American Congress. Details at 11. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to talk about in terms of voter turnout, voter dissatisfaction. I am going to disagree with you a little bit on the current crop of judges, because in the older era, I definitely think we saw, I mean, think about Justice John Paul Stevens appointed by a Republican, but I don't think that happens anymore. We're not going to get another David Souter. I I think you may be right. I don't disagree with that. What I'm saying is that you'd never know. Yeah, but I, I know what you're saying, which is the point is lifetime appointment means that you can be a conservative jurist without coming to Republican outcomes, Republican wins. And I think we see that in some cases with Chief Justice John Roberts, but he is nobody's right. moderate. I agree with you. I, I But history has proven that um, sometimes when they get in, things change. And so I always hope for the best and hope that that would be the case with this current crop, but I don't see it. Uh, we have been groomed to be who they are. And it's no mistake that two of them came from the same school in Montgomery County. They went to the same prep school together, or not together, but went to the same prep school. I know it well. Uh, my own son went there. They breed these people and teach them to be the way they are, and I don't think that that will change. You have a fairly stressful existence. We're going to wind down now. As listeners of the podcast know, we ask our guests the same three questions at the end. We've learned a lot from you. We want to learn a little bit more about you. But first, I'm going to add a bonus round fourth question, which is, what do you do to unwind? What do I do to unwind? I play in a rock and roll band. I'm a singer in a rock and roll band. And that makes me feel good just to get up, play guitar and sing. That is your moment of zen. Yeah, that is. When you can look out and, you know, the nice thing about uh, playing in a band or, you know, stand-up comedy for for that matter is you want everyone else to have a good time. And you you thrive off of seeing smiles on other people's faces. And it's at those points in time, particularly with a rock and roll band, when you're playing, all these people may have different ideas, you know, about how to raise their kids or their politics or their religion or their sexuality, or anything. They may not agree on anything, except for the fact when they're out there enjoying the music and there's a smile on their face and they're dancing, you know you've touched something deep inside people, and and that is a joy. And I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. All right. I'm glad that we're not ending on the um, our country is cycling the drain note. So with that, let's <laughs> pivot to our same Three questions. Number one. Okay. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? Oh, God, that's a good one. Um, Either Mahatma Gandhi or John Lennon. I see the similarities. Uh, Number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? (laughs) If I could bring one meal, it's going to be a Lebanese dish called kibbe, uh, raw beef with cracked wheat, um, some... uh, um, Salt, onions, and uh, mint. So you're a vegan. I didn't know that. Number three. (laughs) No, I'm a (laughs) meatarian. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it? One superpower for an hour. Well, I guess it would have to be omniscience. All right. 
You can find Brian Karam on Twitter at Brian Karam, all one word, on his website, justaskthequestion.com. Please do check out his podcast. It is fantastic. Check out one of his half dozen books, including Spin Control Essays and Short Stories. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Passing Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you so much to the listeners. We will see you next time.